0: Well, I invite you, if you will, to open your Bibles to James chapter 4. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17 in a message I have entitled The Practical Atheism of Presumptuous Planning. Sounds kind of like John Piper, the poetic pastor, doesn't it? I want to begin by reading the text. And therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Well, Father, as we look into the counsel of your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to gain insight into this important text. And Lord, that we might, as always, be doers of the word, as James would put it, and not hearers only. And Lord, that you might further sanctify us to truth as we embrace these principles. And Lord, that we again become more Christ like and more honoring to you by doing so. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to start out this morning by taking a survey. Raise your hand if you like to make plans. Oh man, lots of you. Okay. How many of you today have lunch plans? Raise your hand. How many of you thought to invite me? (laughs) Uh, One. Okay. Yes. My granddaughter. Well, I'll take it. We make all kinds of plans, don't we? We make plans about a career, our education, our finances, marriage, retirement, everything. And the truth is, is that we have plans all the time. We have plans today. We make plans for next week and next month, next year, and probably well beyond that. And we're going to see in a moment from our text that there is nothing wrong with making plans But in our text, James reminds us of a serious flaw that I'm sure all of us have been or are guilty of on a regular basis, and it is the sin of practical atheism. And this is what I mean. As believers, we readily acknowledge the lordship of Christ in our lives. We understand the sovereignty of God. We understand the providence of God. But when it comes down to the business of daily living, isn't it true that we often set those facts aside? In other words, we acknowledge God in the spiritual aspects of our life, but we don't acknowledge him or invite his lordship into the business aspects of our life. So we often can function as though Jesus really is not Lord. We make our daily plans, we may set goals for ourselves, We go about to accomplish our dreams, and we often do it all without acknowledging God in prayer, or even thinking about asking him for help, or certainly in turning to his word for guidance on a particular issue. So we can behave like believers in our spiritual and devotional lives, but we often behave like unbelievers in the daily business aspects of our life. And here's the thing, beloved, if we say that we are believers, and we are, and we say that we believe on Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and then we deny it by conducting our lives without him, as if we are our own lords and masters, then we are guilty of living a life of practical atheism. When we plan presumptuously, we're guilty of this practical atheism. Now this is the problem that James is addressing in the text this morning, and I want to say that I think it's a problem that's as prevalent today as it was back in James's day. Let me give you a little background so you understand why James is addressing this issue. In the first century, the Jewish people generally took to an agricultural way of life, but remember in the dispersion, as they were scattered because of persecution and because of trials, the Jewish Christians settled in all kinds of cities throughout the Mediterranean world. And because of the fact that this was a time of great commercial activity, the Jewish Christians became increasingly involved in commerce and in trade and in different business ventures. Now, this ought to be a lifestyle that's fairly easy for us to understand. Most of us are far more familiar with an urban way of life than we are with an agrarian way of life. Of course, we know today that technology is hugely different than it was back in the first century. But in James's day, as in ours, listen, the bottom line is still the same. They were out to make a profit. As I just mentioned, there is no sin in that. But James, writing to these Jewish Christians of the dispersion, is rebuking them for their arrogant attitudes of self-sufficiency because they were planning their lives in total disregard to the will of God. And beloved, I think we need to be warned today that worldly living doesn't just show itself in a hatred for God. It often appears in the form of disregarding God as we plan our daily activities. This is now the issue that James is dealing with in this text, and you'll notice that James is very similar to the book of Proverbs in that it focuses on practical Christian living. In our text specifically this morning, we're going to see that James lays out three biblical principles that when applied will lead to godly planning and thus help us to avoid the practical atheism of presumptuous planning. So let's look at this. The first principle of godly planning is that our life should have plans. Our life should have plans. Notice verse 13. James writes, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. You'll notice here that James opens with a clarion call here. He says, come now or listen now. And this implies really a great disapproval. It, it implies a sense of urgency against what is kind of a new form of worldliness in this group of believers. So it's a bold call to say, basically, pay attention, listen up to what I'm going to tell you. The only other time this phrase appears in the Bible is in James chapter 5, verse 1. So it tells us that James has something very important that he wants to tell them. But we would greatly misinterpret this passage if we assume that James is against the idea of making plans. In fact, that's not the case at all. I want to go so far as to say that God wants us to make plans, and we see this in Scripture. In Psalm chapter 20, verse 4, we read this, May He, that is God, grant your heart's desire and fulfill all of your counsel or all of your plans. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 18, Solomon writes, "Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance." Proverbs 16:9 says, "The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps." In Proverbs 16 verse three, we read this: "Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established." And then Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 14, verse 28, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? So here's the thing. Planning in and of itself is good. We don't want to get the idea that planning is ungodly. Planning is a godly thing to do. And the businessmen that James is addressing here were very good at it. In fact, my guess is that many of them were aggressive entrepreneurs. They were A-type personalities, organized, very goal-oriented. Any of you like that? Raise your hand. I can pick some of you out. But notice what we learn about these businessmen in verse 13. Most obvious, of course, is who was doing the planning. James is referring to Jewish Christians scattered from their homeland across Asia Minor. But next is when they were planning. Notice they had circled today or tomorrow on their calendars. They assumed that all would go right on schedule, according to schedule. We know also where they were planning to go, that they had certain destinations, certain cities. They no doubt targeted the location of potential buyers. We're also told how long they planned to spend in a certain location, that they would give it a year. And this is probably the time they felt was necessary in order to bring in business. We learn what they wanted to do, that is to engage in business, to buy and sell. And interestingly, the Greek word here for engage, hemparuomai, gives us our English word emporium. And an emporium is a trading center in which merchants would gather together to do business. And finally, we know why these merchants were going. They were going to make a profit. So this was no sightseeing trip, this was no vacation, this was business, and the business of business is to make a profit. Now I want you to think for a minute, beloved, about the thoroughness and the structure that went into making these plans. I want to suggest that these are brilliant plans. We know the who, the what, the when, the where, the how, and the why of these plans. I mean, these plans are very commendable. But the problem that James is having is not in what they were doing, but rather in what they were not doing. The fatal defect in their planning is their presumptuous self-centeredness resulting in the effective exclusion of God from the practical affairs of their everyday living. They were guilty of living a life of practical atheism. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here. Isn't it true that some of us live and plan this way on a regular basis, and that most all of us do this on occasion? I mean, let's face it, it's natural to plan this way, isn't it? We go ahead and we make plans, and I'll bet there are many times we don't have God on our minds at all. It's natural, it's ordinary to plan this way, and the blemish of presumptuousness is it's often the unrecognized claim in our heart. We just presume that we can do it. We presume we can be independent. We presume that everything is going to go the way we think it's going to go. We speak to ourselves as if what happens in our life is really our right and our right alone. As if our choices are really the only deciding factors that we have in life. That in and of ourselves, we have everything we need to make a success of things, and that our plans in life are really life's sole objective. Now from that, you might think, boy, it sure doesn't sound like planning is good. But planning is good, and if planning is a good thing, then what do we need to consider in order to avoid the pitfalls of presumptuous planning? And this brings us to our second godly principle. In addition to seeing that our life should have plans, we should also plan knowing that life is uncertain and that life is short. Life is uncertain and life is short. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You see, beloved, the sin of presumptuous planning comes from a wrong understanding of ourselves in relationship to our own lives and our own ambitions. It's really, as James would describe it, it's a sin of self arrogance. Because you see, we assume ourselves that the time is on our side and at our disposal. In other words, we'll have today, we'll have tomorrow. How many of you get agitated or delayed when your schedule is thrown off? Raise your hand. Come on, everybody, let's go. We don't like that, do we? We plan, and when things don't go the way we plan, we get annoyed, we get agitated, like we have a need to have total control over everything that happens. And don't we often plan like our plans have no chance of failing if we're in control? And don't we take for granted that we'll have tomorrow and we really don't give it too much thought? We also make plans as if our personal ability, that is, our engaging efforts and the profit motive, whatever the gain is in what we're doing, are the only issues that we need to take into account. It's amazing when we plan, beloved, how earthly we can be, and we just make ourselves the overseers of everything that we are planning. When we do that, we overlook and we completely fail to take into account the brevity and the fragility of life, And so in verse 14, what I just read, James cuts into this worldly attitude and he exposes two ways in which believers can be presumptuous when they plan. And the first uh, of, of those that he addresses uh, is the, the fact that we can be guilty of presumption because of our ignorance concerning the future. Like these businessmen, isn't it true we often fail to take into account that our tomorrows are always uncertain? How many of you can sit here today and say, Pastor Jack, my life has turned out exactly the way I planned? Anybody? How many of you have said, I've had more left turns than I can shake a stick at, right? Life doesn't always turn out the way we plan it, does it? How many of your plans in life have been scrapped or changed or become obsolete? How many of your plans were interrupted by unforeseen circumstances or bad decisions or life's tragedies or financial challenges or medical issues or relational difficulties? I would venture to guess that in one of those categories, most every one of us could raise our hand. And the list goes on and on, doesn't it? Now listen, I'm not trying to be morbid here, alright? This is not a gloom and doom sermon, although you may think, well, it sure sounds like one. Listen, life brings many blessings, amen? And it brings much joy, amen? And we should enjoy our life in Christ, and we should live with the joy of the Spirit indwelling us. But here's the point, we have to live also knowing that we are not guaranteed tomorrow, amen? Amen? I mean, look what COVID did to the whole world. If I had told you before COVID, um, in about one week, the whole world is going to be shut down and isolated, what would you have told me? Pastor Jack, what have you been smoking? Right? You would have said, what are you talking about? Whoever would have thought that we would have gone through something like COVID. We just don't know, do we, what tomorrow is going to bring. I love what John MacArthur says. This is what he says, and I quote, He says, life is far from simple. It is a complex matrix of forces, events, people, contingencies, circumstances, over which we have little or no control, making it impossible for anyone to ascertain, design, or assure any specific future. Despite that, some people foolishly imagine that they are in charge of their lives. Sadly, such people ignore not only the existence of God's will, but also its benefit. Christians have the comfort of knowing that the sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent God of the universe controls every event and circumstance of their lives and weaves them all into his perfect plan for them. Amen. Listen, that truth that MacArthur laid down there is what keeps us standing on solid ground rather than on sinking sand when life seems to get derailed, when our plans do not work out the way that we expected. And I say that because when we plan realizing that our plans are in the hands of God first and foremost, then we plan right. We plan knowing That he may veto our plans. He may move us in an entirely different direction. He may allow circumstances that we could not foresee. You see, if we plan as though we have complete control or authority over our lives, then when things derail, we'll be unprepared for that. We won't be able to handle those circumstances because we haven't taken into account that God is sovereignly behind everything that he allows. And that, in turn, can plague us with immense insecurity. Our security is in the rock-solid faith we have in Christ and all that he promises. Amen? Solomon warns us in Proverbs 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Jesus spoke of this same issue in the parable of the rich fool, which I just read during our scripture reading. I won't read it again for the sake of time. But here was a man Jesus spoke of who had made excellent plans for himself. He was very profitable. He was very successful in all he did. And he presumptuously laid up for himself everything and had great plans and he laid up everything except a dependency and an awareness of a sovereign and a holy God. And in one night, not only was that all gone, but his life was gone as well. Remember that Job suffered unparalleled catastrophe, and when all the plagues came upon Job, his wife utterly lost hope. And she told Job, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And yet Job as he sat scraping boils off himself with a potsherd, replied this, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from the Lord and not accept adversity? You see, Job lived with a keen understanding of the uncertainty of life. So that when things went horribly wrong, his faith wasn't shaken and he held fast in his Dependence upon God. And listen, beloved, this should hold true whether we know what's happening or not. How many times in life do we face circumstances and we have no understanding or reason why or when this is going to take place or when it's going to end or whatever? We live in dependence upon God. We need to live as Job lived. So don't forget to lay your plans before God and remember that we are dependent upon him in all things. God is in tomorrow, and you and I are not. So walk by faith, and life's uncertainties will not deter you, they will not defeat you, and they certainly will not derail you. But we see something else also in verse 14. In addition to these businessmen being ignorant of the future, we see they also completely disregarded the brevity of life. Look at the end of verse 14. Where James writes, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. No one expounded on this more thoroughly than Solomon in Ecclesiastes. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 1, Solomon points out the vanity of life, saying that a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. In Ecclesiastes 6.12, he writes, For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his feudal life. Job also spoke of the brevity of life, saying in Job 14, verses 1 and 2, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. So life, in one sense, is like a vapor, isn't it? It's a puff of smoke. You ever tried to grab on the smoke? You see it, and in an instant, it's gone. And that's how transitory life is. Andy Rooney once said this. He said, life is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer it gets to the end, the faster it goes. I think that's... Now, that's biblical. I like that. So how foolish then are we if we plan and we ignore our unchanging God and proudly plan our lives as though we have all the time in the world when we are but a vapor of breath. Now here again, let's add some perspective here. James is not implying that these merchants should carry on their daily activities with a sense of doom. It isn't like we should wake up every day, beloved, and think, oh my goodness, am I going to have the next hour, the next day, the next week? We shouldn't be that way. We're not to become hopelessly fatalistic. What James is saying is that Christians should plan by putting their primary trust in the will of God and not in their own wills apart from God. He's saying that God should be considered first in all that we plan. Now, I want us to consider a moment why everything we do should be centered around God's will and purpose for our lives. You know, we often give these general platitudes, these general theological truths, but we really don't get into the meat of the why. And I remember when I was in seminary and I was in homiletics and in preaching classes, one of the professors I had always said, remember that when you're preaching, everybody sitting out there is saying to you in their mind, so what? So I'm going to assume that's what you're saying. So I'm going to give you the so what. Why is it important that we plan our will and purpose around God's will first? First of all, God created us and saved us. Amen? God created us. We work best when we work according to God's plan. He created us, He saved us, and He alone can give us the most abundant and meaningful lives. Amen? Maybe not the easiest life, not the easiest road, but when we follow Him, we will never go wrong. And this is something that Paul stated in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, when he said, For we are His workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared, which God prepared, which God prepared, so that we should walk in them. Don't you love that word beforehand? It's good, isn't it? Listen, God created us. He saved us. How presumptuous is it then to plan our lives apart from our Creator? It's like you inventing a yo-yo and the yo-yo saying to you, I'm not going up and down. I want to go sideways. I I don't want to do what you want me to do. That's the problem. He created us. Number two, we don't always know what's best for us. Amen? Amen? We don't always know what's be- Our mortal fleshly views are limited and they are often skewed by sin. How many times have you gotten what you asked for and regretted it? Man, I prayed for that and God gave it to me and oh man, that was a mistake. Right? How many times have you thanked God that he didn't allow you to get what you prayed for? Man, I prayed for that, but thank the good Lord he didn't answer that prayer. I've actually prayed things that I'm glad God didn't answer. And I'm sure some of you are in that boat as well. Isn't it true that we often don't know what's best for us? How often do we plan and run headlong through life without giving so much as a thought to God? What counsel do I get in his word? What principles can I bring? How can I drop to my knees in prayer and ask, is this what you would have me to do? We don't always know what's best. Number three, there is no purpose in life apart from God. Listen, if the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, then anything that leaves God out is ultimately hopeless. Amen? Amen. Listen, unbelievers are the walking dead. If we leave God out, Mark 8.36 warns this, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Listen, beloved, it doesn't matter who we are or what we have, this mortal life is short and it is fleeting. And therefore, planning and achieving anything that leaves God out doesn't benefit us in glory or now in any way. You know, when I went to China, one of the greatest trips I ever took was to China on a missions trip, and Gail and I had an opportunity to spend two weeks in China and to be with a lot of our brothers and sisters in the underground church, and I'm telling you, right almost to a man, to a woman, every one of them had been persecuted, had been thrown in jail, had lost jobs, had... Suffered horribly for the sake of the gospel, and the joy that they emoted was infectious. It was, it, it, I went over there to minister to them, and I thought, What a joke! They're ministering to me. I don't know that I could tell these people anything. And everything that they were doing was for the sake of the Lord, everything they planned, even when it cost them. Their lives, or, or cost them great persecution. And, and I thought of what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. This is the verse that I, I couldn't get out of my head that I would apply to them and hopefully we can apply to ourselves. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's how we plan our lives. In Psalm 90, Moses wrote in verse 10, As for the days of our life they contain 70 years, or if due strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. And then down in verse 12, we read, Teach us to number our days that we may present to you, notice this, a heart of Wisdom. Wisdom is taking the knowledge we have of Christ and and of his truth and applying it and living it out so that it affects the way we live and it affects the way we influence others. So the point and reason for understanding, beloved, how short life is, listen, it's not to make you gloom and doom, it's not to give you a fatalistic outlook on life, it's to help you grow in wisdom and to make the most out of the time that God gives Let's not waste a day. Make your life count for the Lord. Be a blessing to others. And listen, if you plan with this attitude, then you have the right perspective on godly planning. So this brings us to a third principle that will lead to godly planning. We've seen that our life should have plans. We know that life is uncertain and that it's short. But we also plan knowing that our lives belong to God. We plan knowing that our lives belong to God. Look at verses 15 through 17. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, if I were a betting man and I were a farmer, I would bet the farm that most all of us fall short in applying this principle. Here's what I mean. Is it not true that we're often quite content and feel good about making plans and then asking God to bless them? Right? We make our plans and then we ask God to bless them. We run ahead of God, we make plans, and then we we kind of hope that everything is going to turn out all right. Here are three true things that I've heard from Christians over the years. You ready? Number one. We're going to move out of state because I've been offered a good job and a nice house, and I sure hope God will lead us to a good church when we get there. Shouldn't that be just... Like the opposite? Number two. I met a great guy. We're going to get married. He's not a Christian, but I've witnessed to him and he's open to the gospel. He says he has no problem with me going to church and I am sure God will bless this. Just, shouldn't that be the other way? Guys, here's one for you. I know I should not be governed by the tyranny of immediacy, but this car is being offered at a super price. So I'm going to buy it right now. I know our money is tight, but I'm sure my wife will see this as a gift from God. I know what my wife would say. I hope you enjoy the couch but pick your situation. Isn't it true that we often make a myriad of decisions without so much as giving God a thought in the matter? How many times do we first seek the Lord's will and are open to His leading before we make plans? And isn't it also true that Sometimes, even when we know the Lord's will doesn't align with ours, we go ahead and make plans anyway, even though we know better. Have you not ever made plans knowing that you were going against the will of God? Yes, you have. Thank you. You know, we see a great example of this in Scripture. In our Monday evening men's Bible study, I recently had the privilege of leading a study through Second Chronicles. And in Second Chronicles chapter 18, we see King Jehoshaphat of Judah, a good king, making an alliance with wicked King Ahab of Israel. And in verse 3, Ahab goes to Jehoshaphat and he says, listen, Jehoshaphat, I want you to go into battle with me against Ramoth Gilead. Now this is interesting. Jehoshaphat agreed, but he says, you know what, first of all, before we do this, I want to consult a real prophet of the Lord. So the prophet Micaiah was summoned, and the prophet clearly warned both of these kings that if you go up in battle against Ramoth-Gilead, the outcome is not going to be good. Now Ahab hated Micaiah because he said, you know, this guy never prophesies anything good about me. Go figure. And yet in spite of Micaiah's pleas, we read in verse 28, listen, so the king of Israel, that would be Ahab, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. Any of you ever guilty of that? So Jehoshaphat directly disobeyed God, which came through the word of his prophet Micaiah. And as you might expect, things did not go well. First of all, in battle, the king of Syria commanded his men only to go after the king. We'll see in a minute that Jehoshaphat was the only one that went into battle that looked like a king. So they came after him. They turned toward Jehoshaphat to kill him. But Jehoshaphat, in the midst of this battle, cries out to the Lord to save him. And God miraculously drew the enemies away from Jehoshaphat. Now... It didn't work out so well for Ahab. Ahab disguised himself so he wouldn't look like a king. Well, that didn't work because in the battle, Ahab was killed when a random arrow struck him between the joints of his armor and he died. Any sovereignty in that? Now, you would think after this escapade that Jehoshaphat would cling to every word that the prophet would tell him, wouldn't you? You'd think, he'd be, whoa, big mistake. Let's try this again and tell me about anything you need for me to know. And yet unbelievably we read that Jehoshaphat would go on to make another ungodly alliance with Ahaziah the king of Israel and we're told in 2nd Chronicles chapter 20 verses 35 through 37 that because of it the Lord destroyed all his works. This is the danger of getting outside Of the will of God when we know better. There are always consequences. And James, in a broad sense, is telling us this, beloved, that because of life's uncertainties and because of our ignorance of the future, we should consider God in all of our ways. The Christian life, listen, is not a game of chance. We don't decide our lives by the flip of a coin. God has purpose and direction and work for us to do. And it's only when we depend upon the plans of God that we gain true meaning and purpose in life. But you know, so often we just don't want to hear this. There are times we know God's will and we don't like it. Amen? We don't want to do that. Why? Because the heart wants what it wants. The heart is selfish. It's self-centered. The heart, the flesh, wants to do things the way it wants to do things. And this is the battle we have against the flesh and the spirit. We don't prefer God's will, and even less sometimes do we refer to God's will. Now listen, beloved, if this describes you, you need to change your way of thinking. And James tells us exactly what we need to do. He says, instead, notice this, verse 14, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. I think the Apostle Paul is a great example of this. He was constantly announcing his plans to fellow Christians, but he was first careful to submit all of his plans to the Lord. In Acts chapter 18, verse 21, Paul was asked to stay longer in in Ephesus. And he replied, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. In 1 Corinthians 4.19, he spoke saying, But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Our Lord himself always sought the will of the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John chapter 6, verse 38, we read this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In fact, Jesus was so intent on doing the Father's will that it literally cost him his life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-six thirty-nine: My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So what's the point? The point is this, beloved. Remember that your life and your plans first belong to God. It's not that you simply tack on if the Lord wills to every prayer and every plan, although it's good to say it out loud once in a while, right? Remind yourself of who's really in control of your life. Have a mindset and a heart attitude which filters all you do through the truth that your life belongs to God and that he is alone in control of all of your days. And beloved, listen, it's not living in morbidity or fatalism. It's living with the realization that your future plans may not happen or they may change. God may allow your health to change. He may allow your finances to change. He may allow your relationships to change or your career to change. He may allow your goals or your aspirations to change. So listen, it's good to plan, but keep the phone off the hook, right? Or cell phone off the whatever. Because listen, God may lead you in another direction. Now, in verse 16, James reveals the sins of those who have disregarded his will. Notice what he says again. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting, again, is evil. I want you to feel the force of this statement here. James is not simply saying that making our plans without submission to God is just a a bad case of negligence or forgetfulness. He's saying, look, it's a matter of arrogance. It's a matter of boasting and reveling in our self-sufficiency. And he even goes so far as to say that it falls into the realm of being evil. I find that it's very natural for us to become arrogant or prideful over our profits, our possessions, or our positions. And again, there's no sin in having. There's no sin in attaining. The problem is when we boast in things such as this, we portray a false sense of sufficiency and confidence in what we have or who we are. You see, boasting disregards God. And this was Lucifer's fatal sin in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, when five times he said, I will instead of thy will. You see, boasting elevates our importance over God, and and then that's characteristic of what the world does. It fails to take into account that God can evaporate our pride, he can evaporate our plans in a heartbeat. I think one of the greatest examples of this in Scripture is the proud boasting of King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Now, I don't have time to read it, but it's in Daniel 4, verses 28 through 37, if you want to write it down, and I would really recommend that you read this. But here is a classic case of a king boasting in his arrogance. He was going out saying, look what I have made, look at my kingdom, look at my palace, look at my hanging gardens, look at everything, and God went wham. And in an instant, God struck him with a disease called lycanthropy. Anybody ever heard of that before? All right, let me tell you about it. I'm not a doctor, but I know about it. This is a condition where a person behaves in the manner of an animal, and it's characterized by howling and growling and crawling. Does that sound fun? Or in the king's case, God had him eating grass, God drenched his body with dew, God grew his hair like eagle's feathers, and he turned his nails into bird's claws for seven years. Do you think that got his attention? After the end of seven years, he was restored. And this is what he said in verse 37. Nebuchadnezzar said, He, that is God, is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now what amazes me here, and this is what I want us to grab onto, is that at the end of this horrible affliction, Nebuchadnezzar got everything restored back to him. His reason returned, the Bible says. The glory, majesty, and splendor of his kingdom was restored. Counselors and lords sought him again. And the Bible says that even more greatness was given to him. And yet now there is a massive attitude change in Nebuchadnezzar. Now God gets the glory for everything in his life. And now the king is acutely aware of keeping his pride in check. And he is living in a way with a new awareness of who's really in charge. So the bottom line is very simple. Verse 17. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. At the end of all of this, beloved, listen, if you know what to do, do it. If you know what to do and you don't do it, then you're in sin. And sinful pride, self-determination has no place in the Christian life. So when you plan, recognize that your plans can only happen because God allows them to happen. This is not a difficult text to understand, but don't miss its profound importance. I hope that these truths will cause all of us to take a hard look at how we are planning and how we are living our lives. If the normal in your life Is to take God's blessings for granted, or to assume that your life is forever secure because you decree it, or you assume God will bless your plans without giving Him a thought to His will for your life, then I hope you will quickly find a new normal. Not one in which you don't plan, not one in which you live in morbid fear or sink into depression because of the brevity of life but rather a new normal, beloved, where you live each day in thankfulness to God for all that you have. The money you make, the food you enjoy, the health you've been given, the freedom given to us, the very breath that God just put into your lungs. A new normal in which you live in calmness and peace, trusting God for every tomorrow that he gives you. And a new normal in which you place all of your plans at the feet of the Savior so as first to seek his will in all that you do. So make plans. Acknowledge the uncertainty of the future and understand the brevity of life. And remember that your life belongs to God. I think Solomon said it best in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 when he said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding in all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. This, beloved, is how we break free from the practical atheism of presumptuous planning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would keep us from the sin of living a life of practical atheism. Lord, that you would keep us from presumptuous planning. Lord, we pray that It would be your causes and your plans that really arrest our hearts and our minds and our wills. Lord, I I pray as well that you would keep us mindful that all we are and that all we do is for the sake of your great name. Lord, we would pray that our lives would give you glory, the glory you alone deserve as you expend us for you to the fullest. And I think, Lord, of the delight in your promises to David where you assured him I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go and that I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So, Lord, please give us wisdom in our planning that we would seek you first, your will, not our own. And, Lord, that as we seek your will, that our lives would be a living testimony of kingdom living in the here and now. Lord, we desire to labor towards that end and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.